Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Kyle Lukoff, a pre-tipping point transsexual who used to be a school librarian but now writes children's books full-time. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. I can't tell you how many times I asked myself, am I going to read that line, which I can only interpret as a dig towards me, this Johnny-come-lately Lord Rapid Onset that I am post-tipping point. Um, I did, but I resented it and I resent you bitterly. Well, it's, if it makes you feel better, it's not a dig at just you. It's <laughs> it more, a, it's like a wider dig, which may be my own grave. Listen, it is a beautiful dig and I will now get in one of my own, which is thank you so much for reminding me that I'm so young. See, that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to remind people that just to the inexorable march of time, that's all it is. You know, there's there's no people more committed to uh, veiled digs about age than two people who are both in their 30s. <laughs> um, I'm so pleased that you're here. Uh, I wish you were here holding the dogs because the dogs love you um, and you love them and seeing you with them is is in a moment of great joy for me whenever it happens. But this is almost as good. It's really nice to see you. I agree with all those sentences. I do too. I'm very much looking forward to... Um, kind of going through these questions together with you. I, I was also uh, sort of amused because I remember thinking like, this is the last recording before like the holiday break. Kyle's doing me a favor coming on the show. I'll pick some like nice, light, easier questions as like a sort of thank you. And and then I sent them to you and you were like, wow, these are a lot. This is uh, this is complicated. Wait, so you intended these to be light and easy? I mean, not like, you know, uh, disagreements about how to put cutlery in the dishwasher light, you know? That's like the lightest uh, kind of letter that that it's possible to run. But yeah, I would I would put these. Gosh, that maybe maybe says something about some of the problems that that come through the desk. But yeah, I would put this on the slightly lighter end of the scale. I I, I now want to listen to some of the episodes that you would call more intense. So you'll have to share that with me later. I'd be more than happy to. Um, well, uh, with that aside and without trying to decide, uh, whose problems are hard and whose problems are easy, because, uh, you know, everyone's problems are just the problems that they have in front of them. I will simply read the first letter and we will try to come up with, uh, good ideas for this person. So the subject is feeling accused. My now wife and I are in a transatlantic relationship. When the pandemic hit, international travel halted. After it became apparent that the borders would not open anytime soon and the pandemic was not ending, we sought legal recourse to reunite as an unmarried couple in her country. One of my close friends of 10 years became very upset with these efforts. She accused me of lying about the nature of our relationship in order to see each other, 
told me I was a bad friend to her for leaving town for long stretches of time and made several mean comments about my character or actions. At the time, I was too hurt to meaningfully engage with these accusations while dealing with the rippling implications that had on our finances and family. I did my best to adjust to a way that placated her while figuring my life out. Now she pretends it never happened and that she always agreed I should travel and that the restrictions we were subject to were unreasonable. She even attended our small intimate wedding this year, but I continue to hear new hurtful things she said behind my back from other friends. I can't help but feel that some part of her grievances came from her own long-distance relationship that failed during the pandemic, albeit for completely different reasons. I feel like if I bring this up, she will be argumentative, but with the hurt I feel, I don't know if I can go through a knockdown fight about how she has not taken my relationship seriously. On the other hand, I feel like I'm carrying this resentment around and damaging any potential healing this relationship could have by not bringing it up. I mean, yeah, I certainly agree. I've never talked to my friend about how I've been kind of quite angry with her for two years now. Yeah, that makes sense that you feel like you're carrying a resentment around and that it's getting in the way of your ability to be close. That seems like true and straightforward to me. I So I read this letter a couple of times trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And I'm still feeling a little confused about the details. But for me also, the, the details don't... Eh, I mean, I would say that the, the details do matter because we're only getting this one person's side of the story. I don't really know what's going on in anything, but that's kind of always the case when your friends come to you with problems. My main reaction to reading this is that it doesn't really sound like a friendship to me personally. Like when I have connections with people who say several mean comments about my character and my actions, who accuse me of lying about the nature of my relationship, and then who then say mean things about me behind my back, I don't call people who do those things my friend. But I also tend to let go of people very easily and Maybe this person has a more secure attachment style than I do, and they want to keep this person in their life. Yeah, I, you know, I I definitely want to leave room for the possibility that this letter writer might ultimately decide, you know, I don't want to try to salvage this friendship and I don't want to like have a big conversation. That would be, I think, potentially understandable to me as well. My sense here was perhaps fairly or perhaps unfairly that this letter writer maybe has a lot of close friends, but not a lot of close friends that they've had a fight with that has gone well, and that they maybe associate closeness with not fighting, such that like when something comes up that's like difficult or challenging, they don't really know how to handle it, which is why like at the time they, you know, sort of understandably prioritized addressing like a a crisis, but then also over the like next couple of years just didn't discuss it with their friend. And that to me feels like, again, letter writer, it's fine if you ultimately decide you don't want to stay friends or close friends with this person. You're allowed to do that. But I I think I would encourage you to at least consider the possibility of having a conversation before you make any decisions. And if normally you haven't had to, don't necessarily take this as a sign that something is like unfixable because it it may just be that you you've avoided having a necessary conversation for a while. I share your sense of like, I I do wish I had a little bit more detail about what those mean comments were. I I don't understand exactly what she accused you of lying about. It sounds like you tried to reunite with your partner and then later got married. Unless you were like, this is my sister, you know, like a sort of like Abraham in Egypt situation. Like I'd be a little, I'm a little surprised and, and confused there. So 
I, I don't know. I'll just leave a question mark over that one. Did you get a sense that any of this could have had to do with like in the earlier stages of the pandemic that the letter writer's friend was maybe concerned about like they're not taking COVID restrictions seriously and that was the source of some of their um, like conflict or unspoken. Like again, just like I hear mean comments and I'm like, was it mean like I think you're a piece of shit or was it mean like because it hurt your feelings? I don't, I don't know. Or was it, or was it mean in saying you are taking unreasonable risks for yourself and others? Like that can feel hurtful to hear and also might not necessarily be inaccurate. I don't know any of the details or information here. Um, but the other thing that I'm getting from this letter is that it sounds like the friend in this situation is like many of us, like deeply fucked up by what's been going on these last couple of years and it's probably having a lot of really big reactions that are mostly as a result of like internal things going on. Also, the fact that this friend also had a relationship end, which is its own kind of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. So it's also possible that a conversation wouldn't necessarily turn into a fight because it's possible that the friend could then come back and be like, yeah, I've been really fucked up because everything is bad and hard and my relationship ended and like you know it's not fair to accuse your friend of abandoning you in favor of their romantic relationships and also it's okay to feel like you're being abandoned by someone for some other relationship like those feelings are real and I have felt that way on all the different sides that it's possible and it is possible for adults to talk about the ways that they've been hurt without it turning into a big fight. Yeah, I I think so too. And I think that's possible here. And in the interest of sort of trying to make that possible, I think I would advise this letter writer to do a couple of things. First, I think the, the, the most important thing to do is to say to any of your friends who have been sharing little nuggets uh, of mean things that your friend has said about you when you weren't present is ask them to stop. Um, and just say like, I, I don't know if you felt like you were being helpful to me or, or what, but you know, in the future, please don't tell me things that somebody else has said about me. I'm going to handle this one directly. I, I think that's just pretty straightforward. It is easier to have this out with your friend than if you sort of rely on other friends being like, by the way, I heard this and then trying to like reroute your, your fight through other people. So ask them to stop. I, I, I agree with that also because like it can also be good to vent about your friends. Like it's okay to be like, hey, Danny, I'm actually really pissed off at our mutual friend right now. And that's not necessarily a problem. That's just me talking to my friend about what's going on with me. It's not necessarily something that I need the other person to know. I'm just processing my feelings with someone who knows what's going on. Right. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where like whether or not they thought they were being helpful to you, I don't know and I can't speculate, but I think it probably falls into those categories of like, Listen, either if somebody says something shitty about me, feel free to speak up on on my behalf if you think that they are wrong to do so. Um, And if it doesn't rise to that level of you feeling the need to intervene, I don't need to know about it. I don't need to hear about it every time someone expresses like frustration with me. That will drive me nuts. And, uh, you know, beyond that, yeah, sometimes people will think or convince themselves that they are being helpful when they are sort of like, I don't know what to do with this. Like now I just have this rattling around in my head and that's not pleasant either. So um, I I think that's a good habit to sort of break your friends of Um, or or just to let them know you don't like it. You don't have to like take responsibility for fixing it on on their behalf. But 
you know, yeah, letter writer, you say at the time you were really hurt um, and you were dealing with what sounds like a really stressful financial situation as well as like the pain of being separated from your partner. So it makes sense that you weren't like up for a big conversation, but it does sound like things have, if not like returned to uh, feeling great, at, at least you're not in that same crisis zone. So I, th- I think you can now bring this up with your friend and you can do so without kind of going into incredibly minute detail about everything that's gone on. But I think if you were to say something like, I would love to talk to you about something that you said that hurt me back when the pandemic started. Um, I'm also open to hearing like what you were going through at the time, but like we haven't really discussed it and I would like to. I think that's reasonable. And then again, I I would not encourage you to speculate that it might've had something to do with your friend's breakup. Let her bring that to the table if she wants to, but like um, you have enough concrete stuff that actually happened to talk about without wading into tricky territory by saying something potentially inflammatory like, and I think it was probably because you were going through a breakup or about to. Does that seem true to you? Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah. And so I would just, yeah, I think focus on, you know, you said X, Y, or Z and those things hurt my feelings. And then, you know, you've later kind of said that you actually thought the restrictions that we were subject to were unreasonable. Um, And while it's nice that you changed your mind, I I wish that had also come with some kind of acknowledgement or apology for that's not how you spoke about it at the time. And again, that's not the same thing as saying like you're a monster and you owe me an apology or else you're a bad person forever. It's just like, you know, you've sort of gestured at changing your mind on this, but I'd like to hear a little more from you and I want you to know how it made me feel. Again, that's a reasonable conversation to have with someone you care about. I would also say I am I am one of those people who doesn't really know how to fight with people if I want to keep them in my life. That's something that I should probably work on. But I will also say that I have gone into conversations worried that they would turn into fights and the other person has often surprised me. Yeah, and then, you know, you can say that if your friend's first response is to just argue, you know, take a minute, um, give yourself a second, like mentally count down from 10 or whatever it has to do or whatever you have to do in order to like not immediately go into like a a mode where you have to refute every point that she makes. Um, And you can just say something like, I don't want to argue about whether or not you had good reasons for feeling that way. I realized that you were also going through a lot of stress at the time. This was a difficult time for everybody. I'm not saying that I expected you to handle it perfectly. I just want you to know how it made me feel in the interest of like, moving past that like difficult time. And I think, you know, most people, not everyone, it's not a guarantee, but most people, if you extend that sort of basic generosity of like, I realize the early days of the pandemic were hard on all of us. Um, they will appreciate that. They will take that. It will relax defensiveness. If it doesn't, and she's just like, fuck you, that's wrong. Um, then you can maybe take that moment to say like, let's, let's table this one. Like there's always that, you know, you say you don't want to get into a knockdown fight and that's always an option. Like if it starts to threaten to turn into a fight, you can always just say like, let's talk about this another time. Also, like you can say, let's talk about this another time. And then whether you do or not continues to be up to you. Yeah. And then I think the last thought there is if, if it feels like a big part of what you are heard about is something that she said to other people, I do think you can consider the possibility of, you know, not framing it as this huge gotcha or not saying like X, Y, and Z people told me you said this, but to just say like, I did hear that you said this thing about me from somebody else. And that really hurt me too. I don't, I don't like that. That hurt my feelings. Like that's, I think potentially something that you can discuss. You don't have to keep that 
to yourself. Uh, you know, it, it can be difficult, obviously, to argue along those lines, partly because people usually feel ashamed when they hear that something they said when you were in the room got back to you. And when people feel ashamed, they often get defensive. But again, you can't control for that perfectly, I think. But yeah, if you go into this in the spirit of, I love you, I had you at my wedding, I want us to be able to resolve this and move past this. I'm not asking for you to like put on a hair shirt or say that you're the worst friend in the world. Um, I'd just like you to be able to acknowledge that it hurt me and then we can like talk about other things as well. Like then I think there's a real potential to put down some of this resentment. Maybe you won't always be close in the exact same way that you used to. But, you know, so often I feel like I have to advise people to like stop talking to someone or to let go of a relationship. And so when there is a possible opportunity for meaningful, you know, healing and repair, I, I really want that to be possible. Also, if you ever want to practice fighting with me, Kyle, I'd be really happy to. I was actually um, just, just thinking while you're saying that, I was like, ooh, maybe Danny and I could like manufacture a conflict so I could learn how to fight with someone. Absolutely. We'll start small. Um, like I ate your pistachios um, and we'll work our way up to something big. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Would you mind reading our second letter? Yeah. So the second letter, of course, you'd give me this one. Um, the subject is too much like Gattaca. My partner, they, them, and I, she, her, have started looking into options for donor sperm. And I'm very excited to experience pregnancy. We agreed that we're uncomfortable with the legal risks of a private donor. So a sperm bank is the only way to go. But the whole process feels pretty icky. Donors are usually listed with silly catchphrases like budding da Vinci and an author and an infant photo like PetFinder. For a fee, you can have access to their entire medical history, a biography, and other information that would not come into play if I were picking a donor, quote, in the wild. You can filter by hair and eye color, height, ethnicity, blood type, education, and even celebrity lookalike. Things that would make me feel like we had more in common with a donor, LGBTQ+, neurodivergent, etc., are filtered out by the bank, which makes it hard to feel any connection to these profiles. I don't want to overthink it, but I also don't want it to be like Gattaca and have my kid miss out on being an astronaut or something. How do we narrow down the options? Is it racist if we only look at donors who are also white, or is it more problematic to be, quote, colorblind? Should I try to find a donor who looks like my partner? Is it eugenicist to offer for genetic testing? How do I make decisions when it feels both arbitrary and enormous? So, you know, as always, I'd like to preface this by saying both you and I have zero children, and I, I, I think uh, zero plans to ever uh, acquire or produce any. I have negative plans for children. Same. Yeah, I have plans in place for, you know, ensuring that doesn't happen. So 
you know, you the letter writer hopefully is also like speaking to other people in her life and uh, potentially asking people who who have had children so that they can get like a well-rounded uh, uh, set of possible responses here. What do you think is like what struck you most about this letter? What do you think is the most important thing for this letter writer to consider as as she kind of, you know, takes on all these questions? So I've been thinking about this letter more than any of the others. No offense, other letter writers. I'm sorry. This one just got to me for a lot of reasons. Um, One big reason is that my, not my current relationship, but my last relationship ended because my, the person I was with was desperate to be a parent. And I knew that I fundamentally never wanted to have a child. And I also knew that that is something that you cannot and should not talk someone out of. You should not argue someone out of that. The desire to have or not to have children seems fairly non-negotiable to me from like a basic human drive standpoint. And also part of my reason for not having children is because I don't, in many ways, I don't believe that it's ethical to have children from like a larger standpoint and also at this specific moment, which Danny, I know you and I have talked about before about like wanting to have children in an era of climate collapse. Um, and like wanting to create new human beings in this time that feels in many ways like an ending. But I also, can I read aloud from a book that I didn't write? Is that okay? Am I allowed yeah. to do that? I mean, it, you know, it depends on the book, but if I hate it, I'll just edit it out. So it's called, oh, it's called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Uh, do you know this book? This no, book? although for a minute I was like, oh gosh, is this an Andrew Sullivan book? Because in that case, oh, I'm definitely editing no. it out. God, no, no. Andrew Sullivan, a very different homosexual. Sorry, I, I, um, I would never accuse you of uh, wanting to quote Andrew Sullivan. Thank you. I would never. So I want to read a little bit from the first paragraph, which has always struck me. So he starts off by saying, there is no such thing as reproduction. When two people decide to have a baby, they engage in an act of production. And the widespread use of the word reproduction for this activity, with its implication that two people are but braiding themselves together, is at best a euphemism to comfort prospective parents before they get in over their heads. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple sentences here. Um, But it says, parenthood abruptly catapults us into a permanent relationship with a stranger. And the more alien the stranger, the stronger the whiff of negativity. We depend on the guarantee in our children's faces that we will not die. And then he ends the paragraph by saying, loving our own children is an exercise for the imagination. And the entire book is an exploration of the different ways that a child might have identities or character markers that are both like radically different from their parents and also in a way that's uh, horizontal rather than vertical. So he has chapters on like deaf children of hearing parents and trans children of cis parents and children who have like committed crimes, like terrible crimes that their families aren't responsible for and all the ways that like the person that you are responsible for creating is a whole and unique and individual human being that has in a lot of ways, nothing to do with you. And I think that this question is wondering whether or not choosing a donor will, the question is wondering what impact does this donor have on the person that will be created from it. And there's no like one answer because we haven't yet figured out nature versus nurture, but in sort of a fundamental way, the answer is like absolutely nothing because this human being will become a whole entire human being that is entirely their own selves, no matter what you do about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's 
so useful, you know, at the precipice of of deciding to have a child to think about all the ways in which, you know, it is fundamentally an act about relinquishing control, um, often at a moment when we when people uh, want to exercise more and more control and, and sometimes then feel anxiety as, as a result of that sort of tension. I think that can be really useful. I'll start with like the most straightforward answer first and then work my way through the, the harder ones, if that makes sense. I also, def- I also definitely have more. But oh, no, yeah, you, you, of course. You do yours in there. Yeah. Sorry, there was such a like beautiful poetic pause. I thought you had like done your first bit. I would do yes. a little bit. No, but that's my first bit. Your bit. Now. Beautiful. Um, is it eugenicist to opt for genetic testing? Y- yes. You know, I mean, like eugenics is a, like it, you're literally doing a genetic screening to make decisions about what kind of, you know, uh, child you would like to produce. Yes. Like just obviously, like that's, I, I can understand why that might make you uncomfortable. Um, and it does not necessarily follow that you are, you know, a monster or or an enemy of you know collective good, but um, I, I think it's important not to kid yourself here. Which again, like I am not saying that anyone who has ever opted for genetic screening is a is a bad person or has done something irredeemable. Just that, like, yeah, if you would like to do genetic screening and then decide whether or not you want to. Like, yes, you are literally screening for quote unquote good genes. That is the literal definition of eugenics. Uh, again, it, it, it's, it's not putting you in like big, bad, evil territory, but like, yes, the answer to that question is yes. And then you get to decide how you feel about that and whether or not you would like to move ahead. Like, I, I think it is, it is a choice that you are allowed to make. And it is also a, a choice that you should not make by trying to maneuver around it or sidestep the question. So I think that might also serve this letter writer in terms of thinking about this like particular sperm bank and this question of like, you know, I don't like that they don't kind of let me search for people, you know, who are like queer or LGBT or who are neurodivergent like me. And I think, again, the straightforward thing here is like this sperm bank does not share your values. This is, you know, you know, again, this is not like a referendum on your values as a human being. But it will help, I think, if you kind of free yourself from the hope that you will find a sperm bank that shares your sense of identity or shares your sense of values. They don't. They are an organization that you are considering buying something from in order to move ahead with the kind of life that you want. Um, You do not have to, like, hope for the, like, good leftist sperm bank that, you know, would exist on whatever sort of like utopian vision you have for the future. This is not an organization that shares your values. Um, and you are, you're, you're going in to get what you want and you're going to get out and they might not help you pursue the sort of like kinds of donors you might want. That's to be expected. They are a sperm bank. They are a for-profit organization. They are not your friends. They're not somebody who like generously offered to help you start a family. I, I don't think that my bank where I have my checking account, shares my values, I still have a checking account. Again, that's not like a gotcha or like, don't worry, just do whatever. I I, I get that that makes you uncomfortable, but it's just because this sperm bank doesn't share your values. So it's to be expected. It's a feature, not a bug, as they say. Um, What's your next part? Uh, So my next part is that this, so this, this letter writer is very earnestly asking what are basically asking like, what is the most ethical foundation that I can establish in order to bring this new person into the world? And 
going back to my, to like my long held conviction that having children is ethically questionable from the outset is that you are starting to ask the questions that you will then be having to ask yourself for the rest of this other human being's life. And like, so Danny, you're advocating, like, so, like I'm, I, I think I'm saying something similar to like where you're advocating saying like, you're going to need to make imperfect choices within an imperfect system. And that is going to be every question that you ask forever. Like the question of disposable diapers versus cloth diapers, you know, using water to constantly wash diapers versus adding to landfills, um, private school or public school, have public a car. School. Sure. But also like what public private school, school is bad you, and it should be illegal. Sorry. Sure. But also like, are you going to then be a gentrifier? What, what, what public schools are you sending your kid to? Are you going to further a segregated system or like there's just like schooling is so fraught in so many ways as well. Um, I mean, do you send kids to school at all? Like to what extent are schools just training children to be functional under capitalism? Or do you unschool? And then there will be these levels of questions at every stage of your kid's development and enjoy the next rest of your kid's life, I guess, if you want to have one. Yeah. I, I think this is all really useful and I want to use that to sort of come back to some of the specific questions that the letter writer has asked us because I think they will be helpful in framing those like specific questions. Um, you know, the question of, is it racist if we only look at donors who are also white or is it more problematic to be colorblind? You know, maybe it will help to set aside some of that weight. Um, you're not doing this so that like you can go on a panel show and a group of people can either like hold up cards that say like not racist or racist. This is a question about like what kind of parent you're prepared to be. So I guess the question is like, you know, am I prepared to like as, as half of what sounds like an all white couple? Um, I, I think that's the case. The letter writer does mention looking like my partner the implication that I got from here is like neither of us are people of color. I don't want to swear to that, but like, you know, if are you are you prepared to be a, a parent to a child of color? How how would you go about doing that? You know, who in your life would be able to, you know, help support you in that project? Uh, are, do you think you would do a good job? Like it's not you're not being asked to like pass or fail a test of of you know, multiculturalism. You're being you're you're considering raising a child and you're not doing it for points. The question is kind of child, you know, am I prepared to parent? So I, I would just really reframe that particular question. Yeah. I, I had a similar, I had a similar response to that too. And like, I don't want to say whether or not it's racist in any direction, but I guess the question I would have is, would you be doing a good job raising a child of color? And if you're not sure that you would do a good job, then maybe you shouldn't potentially set up another child of color to be constantly hurt by white people. Yeah. And I, I think especially because it's possible to make either choice and also be racist. Like it's not as if one decision will take you away from racism forever. Yeah. Are you going to then raise a white child who is, you know, furthering the cause of white supremacy? I don't know. I'm, you probably won't. It sounds like you don't want to do that. Again, deep, deep questions of ethics that have no easy answer that you will just have to grapple with. I mean, also like I still grapple, like I don't have kids and I ponder the ethical choices of like buying underwear and backpacks 
and the computer that I'm recording this on. So I don't know. Welcome to be a person to being a person. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and beyond that, like how do we narrow down the options? That one's so that's got to come down to you, letter writer. And so maybe it will help to not overthink like if we really obsessively like screen every potential, like I think potentially if you do decide to pursue this, the best and easiest way forward will be to worry less about like the little profiles and all the information as if you can like perfectly predict the kind of human being who is going to like spring forth from, from this donor. Um, cause again, I think that will lead you away further away from the like eugenicist obsessions, which will be a good thing to, to move away from. Um, and, um, to simply, you know, pick a guy, I guess, um, is, is where I'm kind of landing on that, which is just like, um, if you want to pick someone who you think kind of looks like your partner right now, based on a couple of pictures, sure, fine. Um, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, any kid that you create is going to look like your partner. Um, so don't put too much stock in, in, in those choices. Um, and then again, just like narrow down the options based on what you want, what you feel comfortable with, what you feel prepared to avow. And, um, but, but also without worrying that this is eventually going to be like, uh, brought before a panel on a, like, this is your life type episode. The last thing that I want to kind of get to, and I, I sort of wish I'd gotten to it sooner, I don't want it to be like Gattaca and have my kid miss out on being an astronaut. It's been a while since I saw that Gattaca. Didn't, that didn't happen in Gattaca, I think. I think it was the opposite. My my understanding, so my memory of Gattaca is that like Ethan Hawke was born like either right before everybody started screening and choosing like which uh, genes they were going to put in their children. And so he was just a sort of like roll of the dice type of a child. And as a result, he was not allowed to become an astronaut. He had to like steal Jude Law's DNA uh, and then eventually like through a mix of like subterfuge and other things like goes. So the implication, and again, like I really want to stress, it's been a while. I remember at some point someone sets themselves on fire, but that's it. I have, I have a fair, I, so Ethan Hawke, Ethan Hawke's parents decided not to Gattaca him. Okay. When he was born, it was found that he had like a, a potential heart condition. Right. Um, and because of that potential heart condition, he had to be a custodian forever. And then he, and then Jude Law gave him his identity so that he could be an astronaut. And then I think he did a very good job. Yeah. If I recall. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. I would just really encourage you, letter writer, not to let the movie Gattaca influence any of your choices uh, around possibly using a sperm donor. Like, you know, because in part, because like that question sort of like presupposes if I choose the wrong genes, my kid won't get to be an astronaut, right? Like, did that feel to you like some of the implication of that question? Like, if I make the wrong choice, my kid will miss out? Yes, it's the fear that it's the belief that choosing the right sperm donor will create a life of ease and plenty for this child, which is, which is, can be a comforting thought because there's this idea of control where like, oh, if I just pick right, everything's going to be okay. But that's just not true. Yeah. And just again, like that, that's a eugenicist question. Like, again, I don't, I don't say any of this to say you letter writer are like an unrepentant, awful, you know, committed to eugenicist monster. I just mean like that is a eugenicist question. If I don't adequately screen my child's genetic profile in advance, you know, their life will be objectively worse than it ought to be is a fundamentally eugenicist question. And so I would encourage you not to ask it. I would encourage you to ask other questions like, 
am I prepared to love and care for an increasingly autonomous being who might be nothing like what I hope or expect or want, even on really unconscious, subconscious levels? You know, am I really ready to take seriously the prospect of getting to know a stranger who is their own person outside of my expectations and desires? Those are the questions that you should be asking yourself more than does this guy's jawline sufficiently resemble my partner's jawline? Um, and that's kind of it. I think that we've reached the limit of my ability to be useful here. Um, I hope, letter writer, that you ask a lot of other people, including people who have had children, so that you get you know a fuller picture than what we've been able to present here. But that's kind of all I got. Banks aren't your friend, whether they're sperm banks or, or cash banks, I think. One fun fact also is that I know a man who's donated his sperm to three different women um, who've had three different babies and each one of these babies look ex- looks exactly like the mother and looks nothing like the sperm donor three times in a row. So who knows? Yeah. You know, I just, I think it's great to take seriously the principle that whenever a new person pops up into the world, they're going to be their own person and you cannot perfectly predict how that's going to turn out. How you doing? How's 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 life? How's um not being a librarian? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so the also the the funny thing about that last question, just to go back to it one last time, is that I also like love children. Like my entire professional career revolves around kids, and I'm good at it, and I love them. I just don't want one living in my house. Um, but I'm good. I just saw sketches for my first board book, which is a book that I wrote for like literal babies to like chew on. I'm very excited about that. Would you mind just explaining to our readers or our listeners rather who might not know what a board book is since you're deeply versed within the different age groups of books? So, so that's why I said that they're literally for babies to chew on. So board books are the small books made out of like thick cardboard instead of paper that are designed to be read to literal babies who don't know to not rip things. This one is a very complicated, po- it's it's a very complicated rhyme scheme, but a very simple story. And I'm really excited about it. And otherwise, all of my friends seem to have COVID. Um, and I ate some very good meatballs last night. So I don't know. Life is a rich tapestry, I think, uh, is, is how I've traditionally tried to sum up stuff like that. Are there, by the way, besides board books, like I'm familiar with like the idea of like, a few sentences on a page versus like when you move into chapter books and like keyhole mysteries where you get to turn the cover and then there's a second extra cover underneath it. Are there any other um, exciting types of book that I'm missing out on? Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of different kinds of books for kids. So there's there's board books, some of which are just picture books printed on cardstock, which I don't agree with. There are some picture books that are wordless that still manage to tell a whole story just through illustrations. There are early readers and early chapter books and other categories within that. And then people always accuse me of writing young adult and I do not write young adult. I write middle grade. And then some people try to tell me that there's no difference and those people are wrong. Um, I'm so glad that we're able to use today as an opportunity for you to address your accusers. Um, I think I want to have future guests more often say like, if you could say something to those who misunderstand and misrepresent you. People accuse me of writing young adult and people also accuse me of being an an introvert, none of which is true. When does young adult start? Is there like a a consistent, commonly accepted like age range or is it just nebulous enough that people squabble? I mean, young adult is typically for teenagers, so like 13, 14 and up. But in general, they differ more in terms of 
length and language and theme. Like middle grade novels generally don't have like sex or swear words. Um, and if anyone uses drugs, it's usually not presented as a fun pastime. Uh, whereas in young adult, there's more swear words and more sex. And sometimes the acknowledgement that drugs can be fun instead of just bad. Sounds about right. And also like there's there's larger differences, but those are some main ones. That is lovely and informative. Thank you. Uh, I am curious, since we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, um, what is your sense uh, of an easy problem? Just so I can bear that in mind for future episodes. Like, what's what what what's the last kind of easy question? So I think, well, I mean, you said how to load things in a dishwasher. That seems like an easy question. Um, but I think questions that feel easy to me are ones where it's very simply a matter of perspective or like where the answer is just apologize. Um, Like where the answer is like, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but I know that I did. And I'm very sorry. Like that feels pretty easy to me. Although you think it was harder based on how many adults can't handle that. It can be uh, sometimes uh, people treat it as imminent death, which I really, really get. Um, I have felt that way myself, but so that makes sense. So it feels a little bit more like a straightforward course of action rather than only low stakes. Um, cause like, I, I think I tend to feel like it can be complicated, but if it's low stakes, it feels easy. Cause it's just like, well, let me list five possible things that could happen. Yeah. I think, I think an easy question is one that feels not like, I think that the reason why the Gattaca question got me is because it does, there are so many different like fraught ethical things that people just embark like people have babies every day and it always feels like a fraud ethical decision to me i also think that but similar to low stakes i think that an easy question is one that's just a matter of taxonomy like you know is is a hot dog a sandwich i don't know it depends on how you're using those words is this good or bad i don't know it depends on how you define good or bad um, so I think easy questions are also one where it's just a matter of defining the terms and then seeing how well something fits into one of those two terms. That makes sense to me. I think one of the reasons that I was inclined to think of even even our second question as something on the relatively easier end of the scale was because I I, I have felt like at this point um, in, in my advice giving career, I, I have been able to land in a position that feels comfortable to me in terms of if I'm answering a question um, and I have some sense of the letter writer's values. I don't worry too much about like, you know, is this the only right thing a person could do? Or does this line up with all of my values? Or would I do the same thing in your situation? It's more a question of like, these are your questions. Here are your values. I think this might be a useful way of like plotting a course between the two, but the call is yours. And like, you know, worst case scenario, if you make a bad decision, you have to deal with it. I don't, you know. So maybe that's the thing about it that feels easier to me. It's just like, well, we're different people and I don't know you personally. Am I allowed to ask you a question? Always. Do you get feedback from listeners who say that your advice either helped them or like ruined them in some way? I do occasionally hear back. I love hearing back. Um, I think I hear back slightly more often now when it's just like this part-time big mood, little mood situation rather than before when I was doing Dear Prudence. Um, some of which I think is just to do with volume. Like I don't get the same like in, in, in influx every week in my inbox. So I, I'm able to like read it a little bit more in depth. I don't think offhand that I have yet heard from anyone who said, I took your advice and it was ruinous. 
Um, I've heard back from people who took my advice and it went well. I've heard back from people who took my advice and it was a sort of mixed bag. And I've heard back from people who didn't take my advice. I think the strongest reaction I had gotten at one point was uh, somebody was talking a lot about struggling in a job and struggling with being able to sort of stay on top of a lot of tasks. And I had suggested, among other things, that like it might be useful to consider whether or not this felt like a, a historical issue or whether or not they thought like anything connected to like executive function or possible uh, like ADHD stuff might be useful. Um, and they were really mad. Um, they were just like, that feels like a big diagnosis to suggest. I really don't feel like that describes me. Like, this is not useful. And, you know, I, I think that's fair. I think part of what I was hoping to do was like, I'm not trying to diagnose you, but if it feels useful, look into it, which is, you know, not the same thing as saying I'm diagnosing you, but it's also like kind of trying to have it both ways of just like, no, I'm not doing the thing. I'm not armchair diagnosing, but if you'd like to diagnose yourself, here's what I think you should diagnose yourself with. So I, you know, I think that was like a pretty fair level of pushback. It was just like, you know, I, I don't feel like you thoroughly considered my like question or problem. I feel like you tried to fob it off on this like newly, I, I don't want to say like popular or trendy in the sense of like meaningless, but like it, you know, it's in the public conversation a lot. Um, I feel like you defaulted to that. And I was like, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair point of, um, of irritation. But I think again, in part because it's like doubly anonymized, it's not doubly anonymized. I use my real name. Never mind. Um, one way anonymized. Um, there's there's no pressure to take my advice. Like I'm just some stranger who says you could do this. And then if somebody reads it and they think that sounds awful, I don't want to, they just don't. Um, so I don't think very often anyone takes advice from me against like their own better judgment. Um, and then like has things go very, very badly. But I've also sometimes advised people to do things that I felt like might result in a lot of conflict or even, you know, I've, I've advised people before who were like trying to exit abusive relationships. And one of the things that I've tried to stress is like, I'm also aware that leaving is one of the most dangerous times. And so, you know, please consult like local resources, um, consider calling various like domestic violence hotlines or um, shelters, um, take your own safety into account. Don't do anything that you feel would unnecessarily endanger you. In, in part because I don't want to just blithely say like, just do whatever um, and and not kind of think seriously about the position that that person is in. But mostly, yeah, it's helpful and freeing to remember nobody has to take this advice. And at, at least so far, no one has written to say I did it and my life is a mess, which would be- That's good. I would feel sad. Yeah. I wanted to put a disclaimer at the top where it's like, disclaimer, I'm just some guy and I don't know you. So do what you feel like. I do think the upside of like, you know, the history of like public facing advice columns is like a long enough one at this point that most people know, like, you don't have to take this advice. It's not legally binding. Mm -hmm. It's just somebody. Kyle, thank you so much as always uh, for your thoughtfulness and care in your approach to the questions uh, of how to live well. I hope that you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. Uh, and that all your cardboard books turn out beautifully. Thank you, Danny. I hope all the same for you aside for, from that last, unless you want to write a cardboard book. I think I'm set. I think I think I enjoy the, gen the genres that I'm, I'm already in, um, and I wish children well, but in a general sort of way, in the same way that I wish, I don't know, palm trees well. I'm not going to become a gardener.
Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. This might not be fair, but there is this idea that sort of like popped into my head. And it's this idea of like bread and butter sex. Like there's the sex, it's like good. It like gets you off before you go to sleep. It's like nice, it's fun, it feels good. And then there's the kind of sex that you have that can be like mind-blowing and intense. And you like never even want to talk to the person again because... It just took you to a place that you didn't know that you could go to. Or there's things that you can only explore with someone who doesn't know you. And you don't have to, like, have the horror of, like, seeing that person the next day knowing they've known this about you. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.